From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. With today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Dominican Father Brian Mullady is in the house. If you've got a question, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always um, send us an email, open line at ewtn.com. That's open line, all one word, at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Zachary Gagnon, our celebrity phone screener today, and uh, our social media efforts are being handled by uh, Jeff Burson, magnificent person. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host to see is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? Fine, thank you. So uh, we're going to talk today, uh, as most of our listeners will head to Mass on Sunday, they'll be celebrating the solemnity of the most sacred body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, affectionately known in the Latinus Corpus Christi. Um, But today, on the previous calendar that was associated with the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite, it is actually today is the Feast of Corpus Christi. Right. Well, and I'm not making a statement to talk about it today. Uh, you just, I you're on it, every Thursday, it should be noted. I know. And the body and blood of Christ is, of course, not only a common theme, but it's apparently a much questioned theme today. As you know, the bishops tomorrow, or on Sunday, I should say, are beginning a year of evangelization on the Holy Eucharist in this country because they realize that a lot of people have no idea exactly what it's about. And that's very sad because of the central mystery of our faith. Um, the whole idea of the feast was instituted in response to several Eucharistic miracles of the Middle Ages, especially the miracle of Balsena. And in this miracle, there was a priest from modern-day Czechoslovakia, which was called Bohemia in those days, who made a pilgrimage to Rome and didn't believe in the real presence of Christ in the host. And while he was there, he prayed for faith. And when he went back, he celebrated Mass at a place called Balsena. And when he broke the host, you know, which we do during the ritual, it bled all over the corporal and the floor, which is the cloth underneath the chalice and the the paten there to catch the particles. And you can see this corporal with the blood on it, beautifully preserved in the reliquary of the Cathedral in Orvieto. Now, Thomas Aquinas probably wrote 
sure, he wrote the office for this feast of the Mass. And he was big time into devotion to the Holy Eucharist, as was St. Francis. It was actually St. Francis who began the custom of genuflection before the tabernacle or the, the Lord preserved in the Eucharist uh, in the church. And what are we saying here? Well, we're saying that when the priest says the words, this is my body and this is my blood, over the gifts of bread and wine, in every way except the properties, they change to being the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. This is defined by the Council of Trent, but it reflected the constant faith of the church. And we don't believe in a cannibalistic way. That's why the properties are preserved. You know, I, some of the laity who are very pious believe that if you, for example, consecrate too much of the precious blood and you drink it, as I had one time to drink three chalices at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, uh, that it won't inebriate you. Well, in fact, it does. <laughs> because that's part of the properties of wine. The properties remain, but the reality is totally different. And unlike natural changes, in natural changes, when the reality changes, the properties change. In this change, the properties are the only thing that remains constant. So it still looks like bread. It still tastes like bread. If you were to put it under a microscope, you'd see the molecules of bread. But faith teaches us that now it is in no sense of the word bread except by these appearances. Uh, why does the Lord allow us to experience this marvelous change we're going to celebrate? Because the host, after all, if it becomes body, blood, soul, and divinity, is God. The reason is so that each of us might in our time and in our place participate not only in the reception of the Eucharist that the apostles experienced in the Last Supper, but that we might also connect this to our presence of the worship of Christ in his ultimate sacrifice, which was offered in a bloody way only once. We don't believe that we ritually kill Christ over and over and over again. The bloody sacrifice was done once for all. But in an unbloody way, we are allowed to participate in this mystery of the cross. Now, therefore, you could say something like this. There are not 10 million bodies of Christ all over the world where every consecrated host is. Because what body is the host and the chalice or the wine changed into? Well, it's the one in heaven, the one in the heavenly liturgy, in the heavenly court, in which all the saints and angels, you know, worship the lamb and the, they cast their crowns around the glassy sea. So in other words, there's only one body of Christ which has all the appearances of his body, which would include, you know, the dimensions of the quantity of his fingers and his hands and his eyes that now exists in heaven that becomes equally present in 10 million different places wherever the host is consecrated. There's been a lot of um, questioning of this truth. When I was a seminarian in good old Berserkly in the late 60s, 
We had a class from a Franciscan priest who later became the head of the Catholic Theological Society of America. And he told us that we were an assembled group of Catholic seminarians from various religious orders. So you had Dominicans, Jesuits, Carmelites, Salesians, etc. That according to the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is what this mystery is called, the substance changes, but the accidents remain. And in this context, substance is a being that exists in its own right. Accidents are not unforeseen events. They're things that have to exist in something else. So white, for example, is an accident. Place, size, that sort of thing. That uh, according to that doctrine, if you put the host under a microscope, you should see the molecules of Jesus' body. And since they didn't have microscopes in the Middle Ages, they didn't know that wasn't true. And so we know it isn't true today. So therefore, we have to deny this transubstantiation and make the only change in meaning or in use, which in classy language was called transfinalization, purpose, or transfigurication, sign. Now, I knew this guy was a little weird, so I wasn't surprised he taught us this. But what I was surprised by was the reaction of all the seminarians of my era. Oh, he's right. Oh, we have to change everything we ever believed. Oh, that's true. Look, I sat there and I thought, that's odd. Sister St. Margaret taught me that it wasn't true in the fifth grade. <laughs> the substance doesn't mean chemical molecular substance there. It means a thing that exists in its own right. So even if you put the host under a microscope, because of the properties, you'll see the molecules of bread. But it is not bread. What is it? It is God. So one of the big hymns is Ata Rote Devote, and Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote a beautiful translation of it. Uh, Godhead here in hiding, whom I do adore, massed in these bare shadows, shapen up nothing more. See, Lord, at thy service, lo, lies here a heart, lost and lost in wonder at the God thou art. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, if you would like to help us spread the word about the good work we do here at EWTN out and about and in your parishes and uh, the communities in which you uh, move, um, we can help you do that. We can provide materials for you. You can become an EWTN media missionary. We'll give you all the training and all the materials that you need. If you'd like to learn more, simply log on to EWTNmissionaries.com. That's EWTNmissionaries.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 
It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Watching on YouTube today, Father, is Father Bill, who says he's a former student of yours, Father Milady, and he says he has a parishioner asking him to bless candles for the three days of darkness. The narrative around these three days of darkness strikes me as superstitious. How can I best serve this parishioner without encouraging superstition? And he says it's Father William Fox. Oh, well, uh, what I would say <clears throat> is that um, you bless the candles without affirming the stranger explanations of the three days of darkness. So, in other words, if there were to be three days of darkness, obviously the thing that was most important for us is to have light in our souls through grace. And so you could bless these candles and say that they're a symbol of faith, hope, and charity of the light in their heart. And that uh, if they want to prepare for something they perceive to be a kind of eschatological event, the best way is to prepare your heart and your soul by doing good works and by faith and the things that the church recommends to us. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. First up today is Bob in the great state of Wisconsin listening on the EWTN app. Bob, you're on with Father Milady. Oh, Thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question is actually two-part, and the first one is, is there ever any... Uh, uh, concerning the death penalty teaching of the church, is it ever acceptable to, uh, for, to the, for the death penalty to be administered? And the second part is, how do you go about explaining uh, that the death penalty teaching to fellow Catholics that may have undergone a, a horrific crime? Now, I didn't get the second part. <clears throat> what part of it are you speaking of? Do you mean the part where we seem to be condemning the penalty or that it can be on occasion used if used properly? I think the former. All right. Uh, look, um, the death penalty is a part of Catholic teaching and actually doctrine, I think. And it's never, it's almost like killing in war. It's self-defense of the society against unjust aggression. Obviously, we can't condemn killing in war totally. And so if people make too many blanket statements, as some have done, where every death of a human being is the same across the board, let's just take the example of abortion. There were lots of people who said, well, you're a hypocrite if you're against abortion before the death penalty. Well, that's not true. Because if you read the Catechism, and even though Pope Francis has sought to basically say the death penalty should never be used, first of all, they stopped short of saying it's a sin. And then they didn't change the definition of murder. So the definition of murder in the Catechism is the unjust taking of an innocent human life. Now, obviously, a child in the womb is innocent but a capital murder isn't. So all things being equal, giving proper due process, 
and the rules of evidence being employed, it's possible for the church, not necessary, but possible, for the church to approve the invocation of the death penalty. You know, we never directly kill anyone, but we do allow the civil order to do it. Now, maybe there are people who think that that's still too bloodthirsty. Well, I think they have a right to their opinion, and I think it's something we can debate. But even people who thought it was, think it's terribly wrong, they, and even the changing of the catechism, as I say, they stopped short of saying it was a sin. I forget what word they use. It's something like inappropriate or something like that. But it's much less clear that it's always evil. So the way I would say it is, well, in, in the society, we have a right not only to defend ourselves against unjust aggression, but the punishment should fit the crime. And of course, you can't bring back the person who was murdered. But if you say that the murdered person that their life is only worth as much as life imprisonment, you pretty much belittled human life. So even though I'm respectful of the bishops and uh, that don't agree, and also the Pope, who obviously doesn't agree, and even though I affirm his right to change the catechism, it still, um, because it stops short of saying it's a sin, it still allows others to say, but on rare occasion, remember John Paul II said rare if ever? Well, I don't know about you, but I interpret rare if ever if referring to a country with 300 million people as 100 executions a year would be rare if ever. Now, that's not the same as mass liquidation, which was practiced, for example, in Poland, where whole populations were just killed for no other reason than their race or their ethnicity, ethnic cleansing. And that's what the teaching is basically ordered against. So the key word is innocent. Murder is the direct taking of an innocent human life. And the capital murderer who may be on death row and may even be condemned to death is innocent in every other context except the deed he performed. So if he were to embrace the death penalty as just punishment for his crime, not only could he save his own soul, and there are examples of this in the past, but he could also help to affirm his own right to innocent life. As you know, if, if two convicts are on death row and one kills the other, you can't use the argument that we're going to die anyway. That person is guilty of murder because he doesn't have a right. He's not a lawfully executed officer, a uh, lawfully designated officer of the state. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Tristan, a first-time caller right here in southern Alabama listening on Archangel Radio. Tristan, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hello, Father Brian. Um, yes, yeah, so I am a hello. I am a Reformed Protestant, and I had a question uh, about the structure of the Catholic Church. Um, what is the? Why is there such a high emphasis on uh, Mary, the Mother of Christ? 
because when I see in the scriptures, I don't see that emphasis there. However, the Catholic Church does have a very high emphasis on that. So I was wondering what, what that would be. Well, I was just listening to another program in WTN today where they were invoking the famous argument for this, besides the theoretical argument that she's the mother of, of God, not just the mother of Christ, because in her womb she brings forth the person of the Word. And that is, I had an evangelical friend, and he asked me what Mary bit was with us, and I said, well, you believe in Scripture, yes. Literal interpretation, yes. I said, well, doesn't it say in Scripture, all generations will call me blessed? For he that is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And Elizabeth cries out, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. That's all scriptural. And it's demonstrating a special emphasis on Our Lady as Christ's mother, the mother of God, as opposed to everyone else. I know some of the evangelicals have difficulty with this. One I, I was reading recently, who's a friend of mine, says, you will not find the word Theotokos in the Bible. Well, okay, fine. That's why we had a council at Ephesus <laughs> to try to express what the Bible's expressing. And remember, when Jesus is told his mother and his brothers are outside, he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Those who hear the word of God and keep it. Well, he's belittling Mary in that. Because who kept the word of God the most? The one who incarnated him in her body. And then from the cross, she hands over, she, you know, he hands over John, and thus the church to her, her and her protection to him. And then, of course, in the Cana uh, wedding feast, all she does is say, do whatever he tells you. And it's very clear that when the apostles went to pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit, they prayed with Mary. Now, she didn't need the coming of the Holy Spirit because she was conceived without sin. But she prayed with the apostles. And so that's the source of her special place. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. And not only, Father, were those things said about her, but they weren't said about anybody else. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Annette is next. Um, she is in the great state of Nebraska listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Annette, welcome to the program. What's your question today? Um, my question is, when uh, um, I was a little kid, I remember being, and this would have been like in the late 60s, um, 70s era, um, whenever the priest was changing the wine and bread into the body and blood of Christ, and he would say, do this in memory of me, um, you would see um, older um, congregation members beat their chest and say a prayer to themselves. Mm -hmm. And I've never learned this prayer, and I was wondering why this isn't done or taught anymore. Well, that was a pious custom, and it was especially a pious custom by the Irish, because I know, because that's my partially my lineage. And what it is, uh, is the uh, when the priest elevates the host, you strike your breast and say, my Lord and my God. And when the priest elevated the chalice, you'd strike your breast and say, my Jesus mercy. 
And I was taught that when I was a little boy. My father used to do it, even though he was not what I would call devout. (laughs) (laughs) 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. A big congratulations to Two Hearts Radio, KZEB FM 99.7 in Belcourt, North Dakota, celebrating seven years with EWTN Radio this week. It's great to partner with Two Hearts Radio, making seven years of solid Catholic radio with EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Several open phone lines. Call and talk to our celebrity call screener today, Mr. Zachary Gagnon, who, I'm going to tell you, is a dead ringer for Nick Jonas. For those of you who, who are popular music fans and are familiar with the Jonas Brothers, uh, Nick Jonas, Zach Agnan, a dead ringer for Nick Jonas. So make sure you tell him that when you talk to him when uh, when you call into the program. Next up for us is Nick in the great uh, city of Chicago, listening to our big affiliate up there, WSFI. Nick, you are on with Father Brian Mullady. Hey, good afternoon, uh, Father. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I had a question. Uh, are you able to hear me? Uh, yes, very well. Awesome. Um, my question was in regard to exorcisms. Now, I was told that uh, evil, evil spirits, demons, have a aversion or strong dislike towards holy objects. Now, is it common for priests uh, carrying out these exorcisms to, uh, to carry uh, the Eucharist? You know, because what would be more effective in assisting them than the Blessed Sacrament itself? Or is that... Um, you know, is that recommended, or is that a common thing? Well, I hate to admit this, but I've never been to one of those exorcisms. Uh, I get very nervous about them, and I don't particularly want to be a part of them. So I really don't know. Uh, I don't know if, if they don't do carry it to aid in the exorcism, or if they don't carry it to keep it from being profaned by Satan. But I, I honestly don't know the answer to your question. You'd have to really ask someone who does exorcisms. Yeah, sorry, Nick. Yeah, you may uh, you may try back on. Um, well, I wouldn't tell you exactly where to try back for sure. One 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 resource that you might find helpful if you go to uh, my wife's website, womenofgrace.com, womenofgrace.com. Uh, she may have some uh, postings in their blog section from Kathleen Beckman. And Kathleen Beckman is a lay member, uh, a lay support member of uh, the exorcism team in her diocese. And she could probably give you uh, a better answer to that. So check it out at womenofgrace.com. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls here on Open Line Thursday. 
Scott would like to know if the Eucharist was instituted by Jesus at the Last Supper prior to his death and resurrection, how can Eucharist be his crucified flesh and blood? Well, that's because the Eucharistic mystery goes beyond the Last Supper. Uh, and if you want a very good explanation of that, read Scott Hahn's book, The Fourth Cup, because Catholic ideas concerning the Passion begin with the Last Supper, but they end with uh, Christ saying, it is finished. And it is finished there refers to <clears throat> what was begun in the Last Supper. Because you'll notice that in the actual meal, uh, it was common in the Jewish Seder to have a fourth cup, but they don't drink it. And they had sing the Hillel Psalms, but then they go out, and then they have the whole passion narrative. And then at the end of it, when Christ is dying on the cross, he says, it is finished. And Scott remarked that when he was a Protestant, he couldn't figure out what was finished. And he asked all his professors, and none of them could tell him either. <laughs> it's a verse they can't explain. Because for them, it's only a supper. It's not a sacrifice. So you remember that just before Christ says that, he, he says, I thirst, and they put the sponge with the hyssop or whatever on it, and he tastes it, and then he says it's finished and dies. So the whole Paschal event, which eventually includes the resurrection too, but it's encapsulated not just in the supper, but also in all the other things that go along to the Passion narrative. So if you were, for example, to... Um, experience the way the Protestants more or less explain the Passion, they don't begin with the Supper, whereas we do. This is all of a piece. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Reed would like to know if it's all right to pray for the intercession of someone if you're not sure they're blessed or a saint yet. Oh, sure. And the prayers are never wasted. So even if the person should be in hell, prayers are never wasted. So, uh, but we don't formally have a cult to them, obviously. So until you're declared a blessed, the church as a whole doesn't pray for your intercession. But you, of course, can uh, ask that. Uh, I, I know I know a, a woman whose son tragically died. She was he was an only child of cancer when he was twenty. 21. And whenever she wants something, she says, oh, I'll ask John. That's her son. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you got to remember it's a, a, a union of faith and love, and it, it isn't limited personally to just the people we've recognized as being in heaven or probably in heaven. But as far as the church doing this in the liturgy, that would demand um, them being beatified or canonized, yes. We've got a question from Judy that kind of goes a step beyond your conversation earlier. She said, since Mary is full of grace, did she participate in the sacraments? Uh, well, she doesn't really need to be baptized. <laughs> so um, I don't know if she participated in the Eucharist or not. I assume after our Lord uh, rose from the dead, 
whatever they, however they performed the sacrament of the Eucharist, she participated in that, yes. Because she was present at the cross, too. And um, so I think you, you need to beware of reading the later doctrine of the sacraments, and especially the life of the Blessed Virgin. She's obviously quite exceptional. But she, the Eucharist, she certainly would have participated in that. And we have a question from Anna, and I think that she has she has left a very important word out of her presupposition for the question. She says, how could God create the tree of good and evil when he can only create good? Oh, well, the tree of evil is not evil. <laughs> it's a tree of knowledge. That's the and, word she left out. <laughs> yes, and uh, if you recall, in Hebrew ideas, knowledge just doesn't mean theoretical knowledge. It also means practical knowledge. So when Adam and Eve disobey the commandment that they're given, then they eat of the tree of the fruit of fruit of the tree of good and evil, and the reason is because they first, if you were to explain what evil was to them before they transgressed the commandment, they wouldn't have any idea what you were talking about. But once they actually do it, then they understand. So the tree is merely a symbol of the boundaries that human beings experience. You also have to remember it is mythical language after all. As uh, John Paul II points out, remember myth there doesn't mean just a fable or a story. It means a primitive way of explaining philosophical truth. And so the fact that there is a boundary to our life which we cannot transgress and still remain human, and also if we're in the state of grace, still persevere in the state of grace, that's what the tree of good and evil symbolizes. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out the wisdom of Father Benedict Rochelle. It is timeless. The truth always is. You can hear him Saturday morning, 1 a.m. Eastern Time. That's the Wisdom of Father Benedict Rochelle, Saturday morning, 1 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Kevin in the great state of Illinois, listening on Covenant Radio. Kevin, you are on with Father Brian Malady. Yes, thank you. Uh, I was wondering, um, I had heard that Mark Twain wrote a biography of St. Joan of Arc, and he I did. heard that he considered that his favorite book, um, why would you think that might be? Well, I, I know what you say is true, but this, again, I've never read Mark Twain's Joan of Arc. I can't be exactly certain. I think he kind of took her to be a symbol of the Pre-Reformation as protesting against the Church. But uh, it's true. He, I have no idea why. I'd have to read up on it. It may be his letters or something, but he did consider that to be his best book. You're right about that. Thanks, Kevin. We appreciate the phone call. Uh, Ludiana is watching us on YouTube, and she says, as it relates to the Mass as a sacrifice, am I also considered to be the priest offering the sacrifice, and am I also the sacrifice? 
All right, that's a very good question. Uh, you're not the priest offering the sacrifice in the same way as the ministerial priest. Your sacrifice is the oblation of your heart, where you unite yourself with the action which is occurring on the altar in which Christ the priest and the victim through the hands of the human ministerial priest is offering himself to the Father. And there's an exterior oblation and an interior oblation. When Vatican II talks about uh, active participation, they weren't talking about singing more songs or that sort of thing. What they were talking about was being aware that you're offering the oblation of your heart along with the uh, gifts that the priest offers to the Father. And then when that's transformed by the action of the Holy Spirit in the Epiclesis, that you are invited to participate in that transformation. The primary participation would be by your presence there as far as its initial character is concerned, but the perfection would consist in Holy Communion. So in that sense, you're a priest. Remember, uh, the laity, everyone who's baptized, is conformed to Christ as priest, prophet, and king. They have indelible mark in them. But the priesthood is the fullness of that conformity, the ministerial priesthood, because we can change the uh, host in the body and blood of Christ. See, you can't do that. <laughs> we also can forgive sins. You can't do that. On the other hand, you can offer yourself and your heart together with our Lord in the action which occurs on the altar and then receive him back as a gift. 833-288-EWTN. Still a couple of lines open at 833-288-3986. Next up is Edward, a first-time caller in the great state of Arizona, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Edward, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you very, very much. Uh, my question deals with um, why is this church still subscribing to papal primacy? Um, I thought that was mainly focused during the 1300s when Pope Boniface VIII instituted it. Uh, actually, he didn't institute it. Christ did. <laughs> when Christ set up, you're Peter on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And when he also said in Luke, I pray for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail, and you in believing strengthen and confirm your brethren. Boniface VIII didn't introduce papal primacy, but he, in he uh, introduced a rather um, extreme version of it, where the Pope was both the head of the earth and, the, and heaven, and therefore should also be able to command political obedience which the church really has never really bought into totally. But papal primacy is something that goes throughout the fathers of the church. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch referred to Rome as the mother of all the churches. And in general, in the early councils, their documents were not considered to be authoritative until the representatives of the pope uh, recognized them as the term used, recognitio, as speaking for the church as a whole. Today we do that by the Pope recognizing it in the Vatican. But in those days, of course, when the councils were in Nicaea and Ephesus, 
papal ambassadors or representatives would be present. And when they gave their approval, then that became the teaching authority of the church. So uh, I don't know who told you that Bono was the eighth institute of papal primacy, because that's not true. He instituted a peculiar interpretation of it, which is more seen in the Orthodox Church with Caesaropapism, where the bishops are political figures as well as religious ones than in ours. Thanks, Edward, for the phone call today. Call us back anytime. We'd love to hear from you. 833-288-EWTN. Next up is Janice in the great state of Nebraska listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Janice, you're on with Father Brian. Hello, Father. Um, I kind of have a question that I was thought that I had thought about for a while. Um, my family, uh, my younger brother, uh, was an infant, uh, lasted for four days when he died. Um, that was about 70 years ago. <laughs> but uh, could we consider to pray to him as a saint? But he was baptized. Oh, yes, if you wanted to, sure. Why not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, gave a, I, I gave a similar answer to a question before that... Um, uh, there, you know, uh, these people aren't canonized. The church as a whole can't pray to him. We can't have a call to him. We can't make images of him or something like that in our churches and that sort of thing. But it's a friendly, friendly thing. Uh, we have a fellowship with all the saints and angels in heaven, and that friendship is based on our union with Christ. So just as you talk to a friend um, and ask them to help you with a another person perhaps that you were afraid of in some way or where we're cherry to approach. So you can ask our, uh, the, the, uh, even the little boy or girl to help you. Sure. God bless you, Janice. We appreciate that call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Brian is in St. Louis, Missouri today, listening on Covenant Radio. Brian, you're on with Father Milady. Hi. My question is about in uh, Chapter 5 of Matthew, uh, 21 through 31. There's two sections there, and they kind of reflect on the same thing, which is when you have uh, evil thoughts, one is about adultery and the other one's about being angry with your brother. Um, you can't control thoughts like that. They just occur kind of naturally and errantly, you know, through the flow of things. And Christ says, but I mean, when you have those thoughts, you've already committed the sin, even though you haven't done anything. And I thought that's kind of against the idea in the catechism that you don't commit a sin until you actually physically do something. Uh, how are we to understand that? Uh, 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 I'm not sure your latter statement is true exactly. Uh, first of all, the Sermon on the Mount is the new law of Christ. That particular text occurs in the Sermon on the Mount. What's the difference between the old law and the new law? The old law commanded the hand because it didn't give grace in itself, even though it was oriented to receiving grace. But the new law, because it's the grace of the Holy Spirit living in the heart of the Holy Christian, also commands the Spirit. And so therefore... Uh, John Paul II, as you know, 
says it's possible for a husband to rape his wife if he looks on her as an object of manipulation just for his pleasure and doesn't have any interest in her as a person at all. The uh, new law is oriented to us being sure that we live the law of God with a right intention. And that can only be from loving God. Now, what you describe as thoughts, uh, you have to make a distinction in those thoughts. It's true that there are some thoughts that you can't control, that flit into your mind. We call these temptations, usually. Since sin is in the will, you have to will them, not necessarily do them, but you have to will them in order for them to have a moral influence on your life. So if it's just a matter of idle dreaming or you can't control them and you don't will to do what they're trying to encourage you to do, then you're right, you're not responsible for those. On the other hand, there are thoughts <laughs> which lead to us willing things that eventually lead to deeds which are evil. So the classic example of adultery with the look, what's called the lustful look, is this look betrays what's in your heart. Is in the Old Testament when David, remember, looked upon Bathsheba bathing, and that look was so strong, he not only committed adultery with her, but to cover up his sin, he plotted the death of her innocent husband, who was actually a pagan, obeying the Jewish laws. So once he had that look, it didn't stop him. That's why Christians have often been recommended to practice cuss of the eyes. Now, you, you need to be sure that you're not doing this in a stupid way. But cuss of the eyes mean that you can't just freely look at something and figure it's not going to have an effect on you. There have been some moralists who, for right intentions, I don't think they're, they, they don't mean to be the way they are, but they'll say, well, you know, if you're a virtuous person when it comes to sexuality, you should be able to look on a naked body and not have it affect you at all. Well, whatever may be the merits of that particular theory, it certainly doesn't work in practice. <laughs> so, in other words, it would be stupid for a person who had the virtue of temperance to look at pornographic images just to prove they could do it or something like that. Or to admire them as kind of, oh, that's very beautiful and aesthetic. Well, fine. For some people that might be true, but it probably isn't true for most people. It would bring forth in you inclinations which would be inhuman. So those kinds of thoughts, and especially when you become aware of them and they can be willed, you need to address. However, it is true that nothing reaches the level of a sin until it's willed. Not necessarily done, but willed. So I may will your death, but I just am afraid of doing it when I'm with you because it's in public and I might be prosecuted. But if I were by myself and I had the opportunity to do that, I might do it. I might probably do it. Uh, so you need to make distinctions like that.
But it's the difference between the old law and the new law in the Sermon on the Mount. And finally, we've got an email from Courtney, Father, and she says, Hello, I'm having a hard time understanding what is meant by the word consecration. From my very limited understanding, I see it as being set apart for a specific purpose, whether good or bad. The good would be the bread and wine for the Eucharist or consecrated religious. Um, In a way, all of baptized people would be consecrated to Jesus in how we should live our lives, uh, purposeful and on mission, correct? I see some bad examples of consecration as well in the scriptures. In Hosea 9, Israel's ancestors consecrating themselves to Baal. Clearly wasn't the move to make. What I'm struggling to wrap my head around is consecration to Mary or Joseph. And she says, thank you for everything you guys do. I've only been a Catholic for a year, but I've learned so much about my faith and have fallen more in love with Jesus through what I'm learning from you. Well, consecration means to give yourself to something that's holy or good. Now, in the case of the Israelites and the prophet Hosi, they looked upon the Baals as holy, but they weren't. In other words, they were worshiping false deities. Whereas the consecration of a religious or the consecration of the mass, those consecrations are good on various levels in which you give yourself to someone you know who's holy. Christ himself says in the John chapter 17, consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, allow the grace of holiness and truth to enter their souls. So uh, the whole idea of consecration is to give yourself to what's holy, but some people can be very mistaken about what we would consider to be holy or divine. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Zach Gagnon, our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together tomorrow on Open Line Friday, God bless. God bless.